0: Welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. Today I bring you a conversation with Professor Mark Reed. Mark's an academic, an author, a podcaster, consultant, trainer, policy advisor, amongst his many roles. And he's someone who's really driven by wanting to make a difference. His research is on ecosystem markets and environmental governance. And he also studies how researchers can generate and share their knowledge for more impact. Reflecting both of these strands, He's an academic co-directing a research centre at Scotland's Rural College and he is the founder of a company called Fast Track Impact and, as part of this, hosts the Fast Track Impact podcast series. Given the recent discussions around burnout, I thought it would be particularly interesting to talk with Mark because if you listen to his podcasts you'll know him as an amazingly reflective, thoughtful, and principled person who brings his whole self and shares very honestly and openly. In that same vein, we discuss here some of the issues around academic research, like the complex nature of research and biases within the system and ways that we might sort of decolonize research. And more particularly for our recent discussions, He also shares his own personal struggles and challenges around mental health and the importance of self-compassion and being self-reflective. And you'll see a really strong red thread about how he's really clear about his purpose and values and the importance of that for guiding all of his decisions. I found it a really inspiring and honest demonstration of courage and curiosity and the and the quest for impact. Enjoy listening to this conversation with Mark Reed. Mark, thanks for joining me. I'm really so excited to be talking to you because I've been a huge fan of your work and what you put out in the world. Before we get to some of that, how would you want to introduce yourself? Because yeah. it, it's rich and complex and multifaceted.
1: Um, so. I guess I have a few different um, hats that I, I can put on. Um, and I guess for this, it's primarily the the role that I play through Fast Track Impact, which is a company I set up to generate impact from my research on impact, I'm trying to understand how it is that we as researchers can use our work to make a difference in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so through Fast Track Impact, uh, I do training, create free resources and, uh, and do my best to enable busy academics to use their time as wisely as possible to make as much of a difference as they can with the time that they have. I am also a full-time academic. I'm a professor of rural rural entrepreneurship and co-director of a research centre at Scotland's Rural College. I've got visiting chairs in, in three other universities and a range of other roles with policy organisations where uh, I am trying to achieve impact from my environmental research. And so I have this kind of dual track of the environmental research where I'm trying to make a difference in one domain, applying what I'm learning from my research on impact to try and make more of a difference in my own work, but also then bringing that experience um, and that kind of lived experience of what actually works in practice back into my research and training on impact.
0: Uh, That's very meta. (laughs)
1: It's nice with the two just, yeah, they work really nicely together. And Mm. also my PhD, wanting to make a difference and failing to make a difference. And then just Mm. like any curious researcher wondering, yeah, how did I get this so badly wrong? What can I do differently? And Mm. then generalize from there.
0: And that's what comes across so much in all your work that, I don't know, stepping into the full humanity of who you are as Mark Reed, like not who you, you know, not who you are as the academic in some generic identity sense, but I think the richness and the value comes from that I don't know, just owning all of the different complexities and the things not working out. And more than that the ability to reflect on it. Will you always a very reflective person yeah i don't
1: know i don't think any more than any other researcher i, I i've yet to meet a researcher who is is not driven in some sense by an essence curiosity but um i think um as i've gone on through my career i I've, I've had more courage and seen the difference it can make to talk about the the, the, the challenges um mm-hmm. I think that that's also given me some meaning. Um, I, I've had some some fairly major challenges that I've had to to wade through to to get where I am, just to do what I what I'm doing. And um, and I think being able to to reflect on that and and talk about that and empower others has helped me to find some meaning in that. To say, well, yeah, it wasn't for nothing, actually. If others can take something from that experience mm-hmm. and and i think it's it's quite rare that so uh, people in in kind of more senior roles like myself um talk about these kinds of of challenges uh, and the result is that you look at uh, all of these people who are further ahead than you in your career and it just seems completely unattainable uh, if if only i had all of the privileges that someone like mark has and i have a lot of privileges as a, a white heterosexual male if, with uh, english as my first language um mm. it, it, all of the rest of it uh, and 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 i think what i've tried to communicate is is that yeah for all of that privilege I I've had hidden struggles with mental health in particular that have been debilitating, that have required me to to make major adaptations to my work, sacrifices, and um whatever it is um, that that you might be facing. My my hope is that that I can give people a, a bit of hope that yeah, it's possible to to get through mm-hmm. um, and to, and to keep going, and um, and hopefully give a few people a bit of sustenance on the way if if they've found things hard as well and yeah some of it's internal but a lot of it is external we we are working in a broken system that makes things incredibly hard uh especially if you find your life at the intersection of a, a whole load of disadvantages and and uh, on the the wrong end of, uh, of all of the the institutional biases and, and privileges that are handed out to certain types of, of, of people it's an incredibly hard place to to work in and thrive. Like rejection just baked into to mm. the uh, of peer review and all the rest of it. So, so yeah, I, I, yeah, it, it's it's hard, but but it's good, and and I think it's just that reality that I want to to paint through the work yeah. that I'm.
0: Because you're talking about personal issues, and I that that is just such a salient reminder about don't believe what we see, that all of us are human in different ways and probably everyone we're working with has different sorts of issues. You talk a lot about building a compassionate culture. Can you say a little bit more about that in terms of how we might enable space for one another to... Uh, on the surface seem like we're okay but actually not be
1: one of the exercises i do in uh, in a couple of my my trainings is to to get people to to think about and uh, and discuss how they deal with challenges around imposter syndrome perfectionism people pleasing things like that so just normalize the fact that oh um we we all struggle with at least one of these at least from time to time and many of us struggle with multiple of these a lot of the time um and for a lot of people just opening that up having some discussion about that uh, the 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 biggest eye-opener is the fact that we're not alone in this and um and surprisingly actually it's it's often new professors who who i find struggle most with imposter syndrome because imposter syndrome ultimately is about a gap between how you see yourself and how the world sees you, and so it is often uh, once we reach those milestones that we've been striving for and thought, yes, yeah, if I can just get to that point, then I'll feel like I'm worth it, that, that I deserve this. That all of a sudden that gulf opens up again, um, and and I think especially I think it's, it's particularly powerful when more senior colleagues open up about these kind of struggles and how they've dealt with them, because ultimately, yes, we come back and reflect on this what i encourage people to do is to realize that they've taken the first step towards self-compassion and krista neff talks about this from university of austin texas Um, that actually the first step towards self-compassion is realizing that you are not alone realizing Mm -hmm. that actually part of the 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 human experience to suffer (laughs) and actually now i'm not beating myself up and saying i shouldn't feel like this actually this is normal and this is okay uh, and and that place of of self acceptance and self compassion um, is actually I would suggest uh, the foundation for compassion towards others. And so, for me, doing this in a group setting, whether that's in a training with me, uh, in a research group setting, just talking openly about these things, and it can be in a really positive way about how you tackle, how you deal with, how you overcome. It doesn't have to 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 be uh, overly vulnerable um, if you don't want it to be. But uh, but that can just normalize uh, the fact that, uh, that yeah, we, we all struggle with these things. Uh, we all give ourselves self-compassion and we start to see our colleagues with more humanity, understanding that, yeah, perhaps you're having a hard day. Perhaps I can see now, based on what you said, that that's maybe what's going on. Maybe I can help build you up uh, when everything else seems to be tearing you down.
0: Mm-hmm. And with the biases that you talked about in the system do you want to unpack that a little bit more i mean you mentioned the high rate of rejection that we know is also tied up with our whole uh, perfectionism and performance metrics and how we beat ourselves up often but how do you see or experience the biases and, and the brokenness of the system
1: um So uh, I guess at one end of the the, the spectrum is the the insecurity of tenure uh, that that many of us face. A job that uh, you have trained for years and years and invested, whether it's your own money or just lost lost earnings uh, in terms of your education, you've invested huge amounts in and uh, and then you've got uh, an average kind of wage you might be able to get. It's not terrible, but it's not great. Uh, given the number of years that you invested in that, and um, and one, two year, three year contracts, uh, and and rolling from one contract to the next, um, and and a publish or perish culture in which, yeah, if if I'm not lucky with uh, with my bosses and uh, and I end up uh, not getting first authorship opportunities, um, not getting time to write up my papers for my PhD, whatever else it might be. Uh, then then yeah i get stuck on a hamster wheel of insecurity i can't get a mortgage uh, and um and yeah that's it's not a life in which you want to bring a family into uh you you end up putting your whole whole life on uh on on hold uh, for this um and 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 then at the other end of the spectrum um people like me who've got security of tenure who who then uh, build networks and get privileged opportunity simply because of who I am. And uh, as Richard Waterby has published on this, but there are others who, who um, have written about how, the, at least in the UK, the majority of uh, researchers advising government are old white men, typically with prof in front of their name, people like me. Um, and so I have access uh, to 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 policy networks that my early career colleagues don't have, um, and and so my next book actually is called "Influencing Policy," and what I've attempted to do in this is to try and decolonize uh, my approach to influencing policy, and uh, to to just call out and recognise for what it is uh, the the fact that a lot of research into policy is one elite influencing another elite because like it or not researchers are an elite Um, and here we are in this cozy little club with a bunch of policy elites uh, telling them what they should do when in reality the decisions that those policymakers make will have far-reaching implications for a whole load of groups who are often disadvantaged vulnerable and marginalized and they don't get, I say, they're not in those corridors of power. And I think one of our greatest challenges, but also privileges, is in thinking about how we can give that power away, how we can, uh, if not empower, uh, and bring those people into the, the corridors of power, give voice to their opinions, uh, not just assume that our policy colleagues are, are going to to do that for us. And of course, that that then applies to how we manage our postdocs. So I've got a postdoc who just started with me last month, and I said to her, uh, I I expect you as part of the project management plan that you are putting together, I I expect you to tell me all the papers that you're working on from your previous positions um, and PhD if they're still there. Um, and by the end of this post, uh, have a plan that that makes sure that they are all submitted and into the system, as well as all of the stuff that we have to do in in this project. Um, and, and doing that mentoring, but potentially coaching as well, if people want, um, and trying again to give away what we have um, as more senior academics, so to those who are less fortunate than ourselves so that we can give them that that, that leg up.
0: Mm. I'm just wondering whether some people listening may think that there's a cost to doing that as a PI telling the postdoc, you can work on papers from previous roles and not this one that you may not be a co-author on or that you may bring in other people into the policy discussion so that you're not getting the the kudos and brownie points. Have you had any... um, Do you have those sorts of discussions or debates with yourself at all? What are the trade-offs, I guess?
1: So if you... If you've got a postdoc that, uh, that that you are really impressed with, that you really, uh, you want this postdoc to stay to the end of your project and potentially work with you on future projects uh, or uh, in an ideal world, come into your team as a lecturer or uh, uh, et cetera then then why wouldn't you want to invest for the long term and yeah there's a, an initial cost to you and they might get a lecture, lectureship elsewhere um but uh but, but one thing's likely is that they will stay to the end of the project and if they do get an offer they can't refuse then they will work as responsibly as possible right. to tie things up and not leave you in the lurch and uh, my PI colleagues uh, who take a much more kind of mercenary approach to this um regularly have problems with staff turnover. Uh, where, yeah, uh, why would I work for this person if I get an offer elsewhere? And why would I bother myself to tie things off? Yeah. Someone like this, when, well, what are they giving to me? Um and and so so you can argue that. Right? But when it comes to the policy side of things, I think. That There's actually something deeply irresponsible and fundamentally wrong with the idea that I try to get my research impact based on my research when policy should not be based on individual studies and and to do so would mean that policy would flip-flop every time a new study comes out that says something different for equally good reasons because they've got a different sample, a different research design, a different model or whatever it might be. And of course, we all know that the the literature is rarely uh, unanimous in in Mm. anything. And so we should be basing policy advice, A, on evidence synthesis, uh, on bodies of work, not just on our own work. Uh, But actually, in any democracy, we should be trying our best to represent different perspectives as well, because the policy process uh, is not this kind of black and white reductionist process of finding a singular truth, it is actually a democratic process of representing different perspectives. And so we will present an evidence based perspective, which could have multiple lines of evidence that might suggest doing different things. Hmm. There could be moral lines of argument uh, that simply say, yes, the evidence might say that's okay, but we don't think it is. Uh, So I work in the environment space. I work with academics who tell me that there is scientific consensus that GM foods are safe and that fracking um, is not dangerous. Um, And yet, uh, at least in the UK, uh, uh, things may be changing a bit since leaving Brexit. Um, but, uh, but we have made decisions that say no, because the public are not happy about this. Uh, and that is right. Uh, and, uh, and in a world where scientists rule, well, you don't need democracy anymore. That's actually an autocracy. Uh, and I think that, that we need to actually think really deeply about why we're doing what we're doing. If this is about my glory.
0: Mm, again, that takes a lot of self-reflection and leaving the ego at the door in, um, how to negotiate these competing concerns, data, evidence, all sorts of aspects. You talked about decolonizing this process and and you talked about um, then bringing in more people. Are there other ways in which you you think about decolonizing that uh, influencing policy?
1: Yeah, so I guess, the the best place to point you is is a paper that I published last year uh, called "Rethinking No This Year Actually Rethinking Research Impact," and um, and this is is, a, is a, an initial attempt to decolonize the, this whole uh, narrative um, that that we have uh, around research impact uh, that it is uh, about us as the researchers who know what is right and what is best, uh, telling everyone what to do based on the evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was, a, a the, yeah, the most challenging thing that I've ever written it took you know, six, seven years, uh, in, in, in total. Um, and, uh, the majority of my co-authors uh, actually, um, decided that they wanted to withdraw and not have their names associated with the paper because they believed that the paper itself was racist. And so it, it was this, this huge internal battle for me to decide whether or not I should self-censor this or whether I should put this out, despite the fact that there is a fundamental problem here, which is that it is, the lead author is me. Uh, and here I am saying that, uh, that we need to get out of the way and uh, enable those less privileged than us to lead this process for their benefit when i'm not getting out of the way and letting someone else write this article and and i think that for me that's been a process of saying well yeah this is work in progress for me and i'm not maybe as far uh, ahead in my thinking as some of my co-authors are Uh, but i know that there's plenty of people who are still behind me uh, on this curve and and that by speaking about this i can help others to become more self-reflective and think about Mm -hmm. this and Mm -hmm. so how i got around this was to write a positionality statement uh, in Mm -hmm. the paper me and my co-author um to explain uh, our positionality in relation to all of these issues um and uh, and the intersection of of advantage and disadvantage that, that we experience and as part of that i in the paper, made a public apology for what I now see as the epistemic racism of my PhD research, uh, where I went out to the Kalahari um, and, uh, and tested local knowledge um, and validated um, all of this incredible local knowledge uh, against Western scientific principles, uh, just as if uh, somehow uh, I've proven that you were right because, uh, because Western science says you're right. I mean, it's just painfully patronizing um but i was blind to it at the time and so so for me it's about recognizing what i've done wrong um that that this is not fixed yet but, but but opening this up to others and in this paper i talk about three ways in which we can do this which is paying attention to voice to context and to power and, and and I guess it's that final thing that I've been talking about here, which is that positionality and recognizing my own implicit power uh, and how that comes across to others, uh, whether or not I'm aware of that, okay. uh, working with that so that I can empower others. Uh, and uh, when I'm working policy or any other kind of context, it's about understanding those power dynamics uh, so that I'm not putting people with each other who are going to traumatize each other Uh, where i'm separating groups where necessary to work with them individually um uh, and some and i'm thinking about how i bring this to them rather than expecting them to come to me or to the policy process or to reply to some consultation or or whatever Mm -hmm. else Uh, and and that requires working with professional facilitators or building those kind of skills yourself um and thinking much more systematically about who we are working with. Um, and I've got a, a process that I call a three eye analysis, where I, I think about uh, people's interest, influence, and impact. Uh, whether that uh, influence is positive or negative, it's maybe a blocking influence as much as it is a facilitating influence uh, to achieve good things. Uh, and impact whether that's that uh, they're going to benefit from this or negatively be impacted by this. And uh, and this is a paper I've got under review at the moment, which is effectively a, a, a more inclusive approach to stakeholder analysis. And I've got another, another paper under review at the moment where uh, we are suggesting that the even the word stakeholder uh, has colonial roots and connotations which uh, are problematic that we need mm-hmm. to to root out if we are to decolonize our language. And so I guess to come back to your question, for me, the, the starting point is, that three eye analysis, understanding who it is that is out there, in a much more inclusive way, but a deeper way, so we can understand mm. those power dynamics and work with them.
0: Mm. And it sounds like underpinning all that is another eye around intention,
1: yeah. like mm-hmm. your
0: own intention um, coming into that work.
1: Tell me more. What's 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 your thought? What's well, that?
0: it just struck me that you know you can reflect on your PhD work very honestly, and I believe and cringe now and go. How could I have done that or how could I have been so arrogant to bring this sort of uh, Western lens? And at the time, your best intention was to do good because you talk about making a difference. It it seems like a red thread value through everything that you do. Um, And so sometimes our intentions, while they come from a good place, may also serve to blind us in some ways to some of the maybe implicit biases or just blind spots that we're not seeing. You know, that that it with time and with progression, just with general society and general awareness, I think you sort of go, Oh goodness. I think we can all in some ways look back at some of our research and go, how did I do that?
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I I come from a missionary family. Um and uh some of my ancestors were some of the first missionaries in in central africa um and um i myself i am still a church going christian um that's that's my heritage and um, and I can see the incredible good that my ancestors did that the church has done, and the incredible evil that, yeah. that um and I'm using those two words um because I think there is a there is a spiritual dimension to to all of this. And so, for for me, that word intention takes me to to a spiritual heart, and Mm -hmm. and the the level of self-reflection that we need to do needs to be at at that level. And whether we have a faith or not, it needs to be. Yeah, we need that 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 external lens on what we're doing, um, rather than our own internal biases and and lenses through which we look at that we're completely unaware of, to, to challenge us and to challenge us deeply. Um, and I guess the question that, that I ask just in my personal life and across everything is, is what, would, what would love do? Uh, and for um, me, that's a deeply personal and a deeply spiritual question. But, uh, but asking what would love do in this situation can, uh, can help clarify intention for me at least.
0: And that's even in your research, what would love do? in sort of i don't know even down to what research questions you frame and what you choose to put your time to
1: yeah absolutely um it's it's quite simple having a a single um overarching principle or or value and and so that's that's been my my starting point um and um and 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 that's where yeah that's that's why every decision that I've made, I've tried to pass it through that and and yeah, God knows I've gotten it badly wrong multiple times, but of course you know when you've gotten it wrong because yeah. love tells you this is not love anymore yeah um and um and yeah so i i I decided that yeah. Uh, Early on, as a 12-year-old, I want to be a missionary like my ancestors. I went to university in order to, to study tropical environmental science to go back to Africa, where my ancestors were. Went to Africa, um, had a bit of a revelation, realized, oh, there's another side to all of this stuff, um, and decided, actually, the, the biggest difference I can make is uh, through research and teaching. I want to be an academic. Um, at one of my, my lecturers in my fourth year, Michelle Pinard at Abdeen University, totally inspired me and i was like yeah i want your job because if i can inspire people the way you're inspiring me then i can do good in the world and she was doing development studies type stuff um and i figured you know what yeah maybe i can actually have a far bigger impact if i can start to be a bit more critical about all this stuff think much more deeply about this and, and find ways to teach others um based on what I learn in this in this area and and of course that um started off in a very patronizing way um but it's kind of grown into um, uh, trying to to not only fix environmental problems but to understand how it is that we can all do good in the world and hence to fast track impact and to the training and the resources that I create which are all geared towards whatever you want to do in the world whatever Mm your system might be how can you do do good with with your work
0: oh, mm-hmm. well, that's so powerful i'm just i'm feeling it in my gut just that resonating what would love do and the way that that remains a constant even though the practical ways you have realised that have shifted and changed with experience with insight with reflection and it's not something we ever think of we did like Love and research aren't two words, or love and academia aren't two words we hear about um, together very often.
1: No, but uh, the word that I tend to use with my academic colleagues is empathy. And there's mm. uh, not a million miles between the concept of love and the concept of, of, of empathy. Um, mm. and, and for me, a definition of empathy is simply compassion that takes action. Um, and, and love is a doing word. Love without action is just a theory, and Mm -hmm. it becomes meaningless. And so, uh, for for me, um, compassion that takes action uh, might be a definition for empathy, but it could also be a definition for impact.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And your self compassion that you talked about before is is love as well. Yeah, because if you're not able to bring your best self in that way or deal with all of the anxieties or the the imposter or whatever you're not going to be able to do the the more outward-facing love that you want to do yeah
1: yeah exactly yeah and i've had some some fairly challenging things that have happened to me and just contexts within life and and a lot of that is is ongoing, sadly. And I think I've 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 worked out that actually just to to survive and to have that self compassion, I need to give myself time. And, uh, and over the last eighteen months, I've uh, you know, taken my Fridays and uh, just yeah, in the morning, I'll finish whatever work I need to do for for the week, and I jump on my bike and um, and just spend time in nature, whatever the weather. <laughs> and it's coming to to, uh, to our winter in britain here so uh, a lot of wet fridays um uh, coming up but um wet
0: and cold wet and cold yeah <laughs> it's
1: really nice is the only thing that stops me and then i just uh go out um, tramping through the snow and ice uh, for the day um and um and just yeah it's just been taking that time for for myself and it has been incredibly restorative and healing and and yeah i mean i'm coming up to almost 50 out of 47 now um, and um, and it is that 18 months of Fridays that have uh, that have enabled me to get to the bottom of the source of uh, of my anxiety um, of of the the periods of depression that I've experienced uh, through through my career and get the clarity I need to understand what I need to actually do now. And and I think it's it's very easy to hide in your work. Um, and and I think that I've been guilty of that through my career. Um, yeah, I might feel terrible about myself, but I can get a pat on the worlds uh, or a pat on the back from the world when I publish a paper. i uh, mm-hmm. have my name on the front. Um, and um, I think, yeah, it's easy to, to hide hide in work and, and ignore uh, what, what's going on, especially when you know that whatever you open up is not going to be nice. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, I, I'm, it's, yeah, it's been 18 months of of, of hard work and for the first time now I, I have clarity, I understand uh, why i struggled the way that I have and, um, and yeah I think I, I, I know I want to normalize that because yeah getting therapy if, if there are things which which just keep coming back again and again and again uh, rather than just accepting that these things come, medicate them in whatever way uh, I think it's important to recognize that, that 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 is an option and there's nothing there's no shame in that. Um, I often recommend people find find a coach, but find yeah. a coach who's also a trained counsellor uh, because yeah, you might feel like there's just some things I need to to overcome uh, in terms of of uh, productivity, but I have a sense that there's a deeper roots and uh let's work with a coach who can then transform into a counsellor if and when I need that, when I discover the roots of of these these issues that, that I'm trying to work through.
0: That seems to connect back to what you said at the very beginning about curiosity and courage. What courage did it take to create that Friday space? Because I imagine there would always be work demands that you could be doing, especially when you seem to be doing so much. So what did it take to actually protect that time?
1: Oh, so I think we can all do this thought experiment. How? would happen if you suddenly got sick um and you had to go part-time uh, you're now having to cut your your hours in half would you be 50 percent less productive or, or actually would it force you to really ask yourself what are the core things what are the most important things that i have to do um uh, and if you do that with your values uh side by side um uh, then you realise the things that actually can go that that are not actually that important that you can sacrifice because in fact it was just there really to massage my ego. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I got uh, I got I don't know two hundred papers. Uh, do I really need uh, ten papers a year? Actually, yeah. If I go for five papers a year, that's still more than average. I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, I, and as long as I'm doing uh, the the same amount of of reviews um for the community as I extract from the community uh, through all of the the grants and, and papers I submit, um yeah, I'm gonna say I've done enough. And so I think you can all we can all do that. And, and and I think you know a lot of people, it's yeah, I have children and all of a sudden I can't work evenings and weekends anymore. And people who have gone through that experience will tell you, yeah, I still do all the core stuff. And actually I just focused on the stuff that was most important. And when it's your values that are driving you to do that, then it becomes easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was a matter of survival. I I realised that that I wasn't going to be able to keep to keep going. Um, you know, the, the lockdown was the kind of the final straw for me in terms of my anxiety. I didn't make it back to face to face work, um, and um, and yeah, that that was what made me realise. Yeah, this is fundamental and problematic enough and compromising work uh, to the point that actually. I need to talk to my line manager about this. Um, I need to above board go and take these Fridays and and do this work. Uh, and I think ultimately the the payback will be that I will be able to have I've I've done two three now actually work face to face work uh, things and they've gone they've gone well. Um, and so so there will be that payback. And I think there's this false economy where you say I don't have time to prioritize me. I need to just dive into my work. Uh, and yeah, if you were to spend half an hour, an hour every Monday morning in work time, just doing something deeply for you. Uh, and it could be a work priority, chipping away at some papers. It could be, I don't know, playing a, an instrument, being creative, but something that connects you with your values, with your purpose at the beginning of your week. If you count at the beginning of your day, then uh, yeah, you're taking time out. But actually you go into your day inspired you go into your day with this sense of I can and as a result you don't procrastinate uh, you don't people please um, you get on with the difficult things um, and, uh, and you have this sense of well-being that, that stretches out and becomes an R from week to week to month to month to term to term uh, and uh, enables you to actually work more effectively and so so yeah I think it's a false economy just saying yeah I'm, I'm too busy to prioritize myself. Mm-hmm and my own needs, um, and I put work first, but I'm just running around like a headless chicken.
0: Yeah, the headless chicken is something that we can probably, many of us can relate to well. And that requires, you know, you when you were talking about your PhD student, you talked about the longer term view with them and enabling their career development and also the payback that they store through. you. It's the same long-term view that you're talking about here, that in the short-term view, we can just get the headless chicken, uh, can't look further than all the things on the to-do list, but that if you can prioritize that time and connect with what energizes you and where you can make your difference, where you want to make your difference, um, it resources you for everything else that you need to do. And, and it may be a long process. I think that's the other thing that's interesting is the you know the arc of our careers. You know, you talked about the, the well-being arc, and it's the arc of our careers that, if we want to be around for the long term, these are almost like non-negotiables. Being able to do these things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um... Any parent will know the same thing. It can just be sort of grueling. You know, you're not getting any sleep. There's just so many things to do and you're trying to work at the same time. Um, and and yet you know that if, that if you don't somehow manage to, to get enough sleep, uh, if you don't somehow manage to, to prioritize just even a tiny bit of time for yourself, um, then you're not actually going to be able to be the parent that you want to be. And you start seeing coming out in your parenting and the impact of that. Um, and so, yeah, we all find this truth in different ways, in different contexts, uh, that, that it is that the idea that, that everything starts with love, uh, and whether that is a source that you find from within yourself or from a higher being, um, that, that it has to start with, uh, with, uh, with, with the hearts of love within you, uh, and uh, only from that place of, of self-care can you then care for others uh, properly? And it doesn't mean being selfish, doesn't mean spending lots of time. I think that's one of the objections to the approach that I train in through the productive researcher, which is this idea that you start your week or your day with something that connects you to your purpose. Um, and and people are like, well, that's just really selfish. But But actually... Uh, if if a colleague came to you and said, I want to chip away at, at one of my papers for my PhD uh, or practice uh, an instrument um, to energize me for the week, uh, one hour per, per, per week uh, before I start my week, uh, you wouldn't say, well, that's really selfish. I want all your time for me and my project, I hope. He was like, yeah, that's really great. That's fantastic. And I can, of course, can see how that will benefit you and in the long term, your work and project and and you'd be like yeah so why can we not do that for ourselves actually if you can't do that for yourself it says something much deeper about your own self-respect and you need to go do the work to to ask well why can't i prioritize half an hour on a monday morning as a starting point for this for me i can't do that i can't find half an hour i'm not worth even that yeah and and of course then you go on a different journey and hopefully realize at the end of that that maybe you can uh, give yourself half an hour and half an hour per week can be enough just to give you the sense of, uh, yeah, I am actually a human being after all uh, that has has purpose and it is connected to something deeper.
0: So purpose and values are recurring themes in what you've said here um, today and in your book. So to You've got another book on research impact, um, The Handbook of Research Impact, but the the two books that purpose and values particularly figure in, I think, are The Productive Researcher and Impact Culture. And I love the way, and I know that you've talked about it as sort of, you know, uh, you're talking about these things that sound like what academia wants, you know, productive research, producing lots of outputs and papers. or having impact, which is, particularly in the UK, in terms of how they evaluate research assessment and increasingly in other places, a big issue. But you underpin all this again with this, this love, what would love have you do, and this starting point also of values and purpose. But for many people, when we talk about purpose, it often becomes this sort of ethereal, concept and how do people get a handle on it can you say a little bit more about purpose
1: yeah yeah absolutely um so a a question that, that i start many of my trainings with which you can all ask yourselves is simply what do you love most about your work um and And yeah, you can say, well, I'm interested in thermodynamics and that's what I research. But why? Why are you interested in that of all things? I mean, yeah, go to a school reunion um, and try and explain to someone why that is intrinsically an interesting thing that you would love and you'll just get weird looks. I mean, what is it about that? Um, And now I get a sense of, well, it's just this sense of of wonder, of awe, of curiosity. Uh, For others, it's uh, this, this sense of creativity, of playfulness, of fun for others it's uh, knowing that i'm making a difference uh, wanting to help others Uh, seeing uh, that curiosity and creativity transformed into something productive that others can use for example and uh, and and the quality of that conversation at the end of it it's energized it's inspired and you realize yeah when was the last time i actually thought about that uh, that why uh, and then when was the last time I did something that connected me with that why? And in a, in a busy academic role uh, with personal pressures um, of life, you end up just on this hamster wheel sometimes, never getting to prioritize the things that you love until you get to the place where you no longer love your work. Actually, you feel demotiv- de- demotivated, de-energized, uninspired. You're dragging yourselves through each day, each week. And, and and the idea is simply to, to ask yourself, well, what are the things that you do that take you to that place of oh, like love? And how can you make time for that on a regular basis? Yeah. And I take people through a bunch of exercises to really clarify that. I get people to think about their different identities. So I start with a work identity, a home identity. What are those different home identities? They've I mean, got different roles. Um, but but what do I bring to those roles? So yeah, I'm a teacher, I'm a researcher, but actually, no, I'm not just a teacher. I'm I'm a facilitator. That's how I do teaching. I'm not just a researcher. I'm an explorer or whatever it might be. And we now have all of these different identities. And from those identities, we look at values. What are the things that animate, that inspire you to be a facilitator rather than a teacher and to be an explorer rather than just a learner, for example, uh, as a researcher, um, Uh, where does that come from? And then it is at that intersection between our identities and our values that we find our purpose. Uh, And the final thing that I get people to do then is to say, well, great, if this is uh, who you are and the values that inspire you, uh, now how does that match up to how you spend your time? Uh, I get people to draw this as a pie chart. And if you redraw that pie chart, now saying, well, how much time do I get to spend being creative? um being the father i want to be the husband i want to be whatever else it might be uh what are the things that 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 feel which are big parts of your identity underpinned by important values that actually feel consistently squeezed i never get enough time in fact i get no time at all in some of these these parts of myself Mm -hmm. and i feel like i'm losing touch with that part of myself that i'm becoming thinner somehow as as a person and then the question is, what could you do on a habitual basis uh, in as little as half an hour on a Monday morning that could connect you with that part of yourself, or, or at least one of those parts of yourself that's mm-hmm. really important but is squeezed? What you get then is this disproportional impact on that sense of who you are, your identity, your values, your sense of well being, and half an hour doing that thing now actually rights all of these wrongs, gives you this sense of well-being, this sense of work-life balance even coming, even although you haven't quite got the hours under control yet, that can just power you through so much.
0: Mm. Yeah. The, the um, thing that is also really impactful in your Impact Culture book is the, the notion that this change can happen from the bottom up as well. Like we can all do that, find a half hour, and we can all role model that within our places where we're working. And you talk about building culture from that bottom up and that we don't need to have the sign at our door saying we're a leader to be a leader in that and and very much that sense of leading by empowering. And I'm conscious that we're getting up to time I could just leave it there as a teaser for people to make sure they go and read the Impact Culture book to read more about that. Or is there sort of a short thing you'd want to say um, around that?
1: Yeah, I, I guess it's it's just summing up, isn't it? And um, how how can we go from a conversation like this into a, a, a more purposeful day? Um, to to make some plans that will connect us each with whatever our purpose might be to remind us of that um, and not to wait for a new head of school um, to perfect job that I'm going to get um, that, that will be a place in which I can feel like I belong. Uh, I can create that place now uh, for myself, perhaps with a, a small number of other colleagues around me who share a similar purpose to me um, and um, I just, yeah, you know, I just want to empower you to, 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 to think for yourself, and uh, and to make that time, whatever the pressures might be, because it will pay, it will pay, pay dividends. It really yeah. will.
0: Yeah, and and creating that more purposeful workplace that you talk about as well, which then leads into all of the. Actual impact that we want our research to have in the ways that you talk about, so I look forward to your next book coming out, and I will point people in the show notes to your web pages, your wonderful podcast and your books and i I also just want to thank you for making the book so readable, so personal, and so actionable. I think. There's a way in which they also walk the talk about making a difference and having impact, uh, just in what you bring to it. Anything that you would want to just say in final?
1: Yeah, just to say thank you, uh, Gerald, and um, and yeah. So so have a have a look, listen to it to what I'm doing. I've just finished a a, a series in the podcast on on evaluating and evidencing impact. I'm not quite sure where I'm going to take it next. Um, and what a privilege it is to, to be able to connect. it's always nice when you're kind of aware of someone um, and listening to their work, mm. and getting that opportunity to actually connect and have that conversation. So thank you.
0: Indeed. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. I really want to thank Mark for sharing so honestly here. And again, what an inspiring demonstration of courage, curiosity and the quest for impact. I'd really encourage you to follow up on all of Mark's great resources, his podcast, his books, the trainings that he does, and so on. You can find the links to all of these in the show notes. And I'd also encourage you to think about what's the one thing you will do now, having listened to this, and what would love have you do today? You can find the summary notes, a transcript, and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And I'm really hoping that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently. And you can contribute to this by rating the podcast and also giving feedback. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues. Together, we can make change happen.